Carla Miller is a renowned poet. She is also the program director, founder, and creator of the Mana Moana Leadership Program. Her work explores knowledge, language, and core concepts indigenous to the Moana. In this episode, she shares about her creative life, her mama life, and the similarities that we, the people of Te Moana Nui Akiwa, all share. We also talk briefly about suicide, so take care when listening. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Kia ora te we have uh, another amazing nuku wahine for you today. We have the beautiful Kalo Mila, tēnā koe. Oh, tēnā oh, Actually, I should say mālo e lele. Ah, mālo e lele. Don't ask me to. I've been, I've been in a Tongan family for 18 years and don't ask me too much further in the conversation because <laughs> I can say naughty words and I can ask you about food. <laughs> that's, a bit, that's about that's as much funny. as I can like, go. I bypassed all the swear words because I'm a girl and my father oh, was yes. Tongan. But now I've got Tongan teenage sons who hear all the words that they've been called all their life by their grandpa and are really shocked about what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's when you it's when you're teaching people words and then they actually realize what the words are that you're like oh it's not fun anymore. No. <laughs> um can you tell me a little bit about you know obviously we we're talking we're speaking these Tongan words because there is Tongan heritage yeah. here that we're going to start exploring. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're from and a bit about your upbringing? Uh, I have a poem actually um, oh, yes. that is around like where are you from because I have such different answers depending on um, who asks. And the first one actually is Nohia Kwe because I used to, I still get asked that all the time because I'm misrecognised as Māori and I always, I mean in my poem even, I'm like, oh, nowhere here, you know, because mm. um, I'm just so conscious that in terms of whakapapa, like, I'm absolutely manuhiri. So, and then it goes on with some, a Pākehā person asking me, where am I from? Which I find quite rude in that context, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm from, you know, I'm from Aotearoa. Oh, you know, I wouldn't normally say that. And then they're like, no, but where are you really from? Because that is such a thing. Where are you really from? But it's from? such a loaded question. Yeah, Where are you is. really from? Because they're trying to pinpoint my not whiteness, really, yep. and tag it somewhere. And so then I would say, um, you know, like obviously I'm from Tonga, my dad's from Tonga. Um, and then the last stanza is a Tongan person going, Where are you from? <laughs> and then I'll go, Oh, my mother is a Balangi because I'm not like real, real, you know, like that. they're actually not asking me, you know, yeah. and then I'll say I'm from Golfo'o because that's the village that I'm from and my grandmother's from Wofu. So there are so many weird answers to that question. Yeah, it's so relational. And, and it's very much about, you know, when we talk about who we are and where we're from, 
it's about us trying to make fucker papa connections yeah. to each other and 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 trying to connect in all these different ways yeah. and which is why it's funny when others ask that it becomes really loaded because actually it's not about when no, when the where like are you really you, from it's like not about how those are you connections from me how do we yeah yeah um, but I grew up in, I was born in Osorua and um, oh, yeah. I've just been there actually. So it's kind of, um, my father migrated when he was 18 um, from Tonga. He stowed away actually, like completely illegally. Mm. And then when he got my mum pregnant, <laughs> they <laughs> he had to stow away back into Tonga. And she talks about like going on that passage. So he had to like break into the ship. And then they got quite close to Nukolofa in, in the middle of the night and he just jumped and oh my dropped gosh. into the water and um, swam back to shore. <laughs> and then she arrived and he was like yelling and waving. So then they got married, yeah. Because he could, they couldn't get married because he was so illegal. <laughs> it's just oh my such gosh. a funny story. But my dad will talk about the day he came to Aotearoa, the Beatles had just arrived and so, um, and he couldn't speak any English at all. And so they got off, they had to like sneak out of the ship because obviously they weren't supposed to be on it. And then him and his mates, none of them could speak English and they dropped stones as they walked, kind of like Hansel and Gretel style, <laughs> so they could find their way back to where they'd come from. I kind of can't imagine what it was like for them, you know. Amazing. Um, but then they saw like a Guttenbeil, one of the women that they knew from home and yeah. she like immediately swept them up and took them to... <laughs> Um, yeah, her family home, which was in Ponsonby back in the day, you know. But me, I am the child of my dad, Maka, who you kind of get, who's Tongan, you've mm-hmm. got a sense of. And my mum is Palangi and they're really, really different. Um, and they're not together anymore. I just couldn't make that work. But um, she on one side is like a sixth-generation New Zealander, um, Pākehā, obviously, and then through her mother's side, her grandmother, who was alive in my lifetime, Florence, migrated from Samoa in the early 1900s. Wow. Yeah, so it's quite a different um, Pacific trajectory. And it was a little bit sad, to be honest, because that whānau lived in Savai and she descended from multiple Samoan women who married traders and um, the Stowers family and the Key family and then Kingi. And they lived right next to Matavanu, the volcano, and it erupted. And their house was kind of covered in lava. So you can still go and see the, the whale wow. standing there in the lava. It made them kind of refugees to Ubolu. And she, um, that was then during the German takeover of Samoa and she survived the influenza epidemic and there's a letter from here, right? So because they lost everything, she was like a house girl in a German, um, the Hagen family, they were ice makers. And um, and I wonder if they're connected to the ice cream people, Hagen, you know. Oh. Um, but anyway. Um, but inheritance there, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was fluent in German, Samoan and English. But, yeah, and there's this really tragic letter that she wrote um, about how sick they all were, like, you know, um, to her parents because she wasn't living with them. And then um, she had a 
sexually violent assault that resulted in a child that she then gave to her parents to raise as if it was her, you know, youngest Youngest brother and and was sent to Aotearoa and she worked in the Grand Hotel in Palmerston North. So, like, quite a sad story in lots and lots of ways. Um, And, yeah, so she married my great-grandfather who was British but was sent as, like, um, New Zealand troops to um, to Samoa. And on that side, we are, relate, like, someone married in who was amongst the New Zealand kind of military that shot on the Mo. So we've just got, like, this really complicated, like, Pakia and Palangi and Samoan in British heritage that is, yeah, is really complicated. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about, are you an only child? No, I have a sister who's here right now. Oh, oh awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's kind of looking. Whether she realised it or not, she's looking after my kids. <laughs> like, goodbye. I'll see um, you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All I said is, I have to be out of here at eight o'clock. <laughs> have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to love sisters. Um, can you tell me a bit about your childhood and your, and your youth? Because you grew up, so you're born in Rotorua, yeah. but grew up in Palmy, but then went to Tonga High School. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, oh, there's just one more thing I want to say about Rotorua is that my dad went to live with his uncles and they all married into Māori families around Ohenemutupā, oh, wow. into the Morrison family and other families. And they were, back in the day, they all had painting businesses and they were super wealthy. Like, they rocked Cadillacs and owned oh racehorses and stuff. And it's such a different story again to, like, the one that is told about migrants. So I just us told about us. Um, yeah, I think we were not, because I'm from the Uluave family and I went there recently and I was just making that connection and... Um, the guy was like, oh, the ukulele family. <laughs> you know, I can just sort of see how it was. Like that's back in the day-day, you know, in the 1960s, my dad arrived. So they were already there and married. And um, one of my, the very first Tongan aunt, like there is, they're buried in the Urupadia and one of the, one of the Tongan cousins died in the 1920s. Wow. So it's just like way older than you think, you know, it's kind of cool. Yeah, in, in, a, in a Pacific history in Aotearoa that we miss because we talk a lot about the big migration of yeah. Pacific families yeah. to come here looking for work, not necessarily the stowaways in their, no, <laughs> their family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so we moved to Palmerston North, which is where my mum's Pākehā and slash Samoan Fano lived, and we were, there were two Tongan families in wow. Palmy at that time, us and the Muffies, and that was kind of it. And for like a long time, I mean, there were some Tongan students at Massey. Um, and in my Pakia family, my sister and I were the only brown girls. So we had a really heightened sense of our skin colour in a way. Mm. And I, it's funny, well, it's not funny. My, um, <laughs> my, my grandmother's um, husband 
because she got married twice. We went to his funeral um, last year. He died during lockdown. And my boys walked in and we were late. And they were like, and I thought, don't worry, we'll just go through here. And then we had to walk past this big glass. Like everybody could see us kind of creeping (laughs) in. And they were like in their black hoodies because I was trying to get them in black. And then... They, we were literally like the only brown people in the room and I could just see them looking around feeling like in a way a little bit creeped out by it because they weren't used to it at all. And I was like, this was my whole childhood, which is why in a way I have such a strong sense of coming from an ethnic minority of like huge fierceness about anti-racism, about really feeling the way that I see us being treated differently and stuff. And yet when you, I'm in Auckland, because I'm so fair, because I'm a huffa cussy, like pe- other people don't like see me that way or like see skin privilege, which is like totally there. Yeah. But it's just real interesting because we were just so the brown kids in a sea of white. And it's quite a different experience. It, it is, <laughs> my husband says this to me a lot, and because my skin is much fairer, I can get away with skin privilege in yeah. many spaces. Mm-hmm. And he says that to me a lot when he goes, you know, he'll feel really uncomfortable in a space. I'm like, why are you feeling so uncomfortable? What's going on? He goes, because I'm the blackest guy in the room. And I'm like, yeah. oh. And I I don't notice it because I'm, I don't think about that in myself. When I open my mouth, I notice it because I might have fair skin, but as soon as I open my mouth, people know that <laughs> that there's a Māori woman yeah. that's behind that. Inside of um, <laughs> a very loud one. Um, but I don't notice it as much, and it's made me more conscious of my daughter because mm. she has her father's skin tone, mm. and she... Um, I think, you know, here in Tamaki we're very privileged because we are so multicultural yeah. up here, but I've recently been down in the South Island and I felt yeah. dark yeah. and I'm not. And yeah. I was in the South Island like, wow, yeah, regionally I do notice the difference and people are not used to, you know, in walking around with all the tattoos that I have on my body mm-hmm. and all of that yeah. sort of stuff that I'm just like, oh, okay, this does make me think twice. It was a little bit heartbreaking for me my son is really dark. And even as a baby, I remember one of Dave's kind of like hobby relatives going, oh, you got a Tongan baby. Don't worry, he'll grow up and look like a Balangi. And I was just like, oh, did you just like, there was so many people color commented on how dark he was, like in a kind of derogatory way from the Tongan side. And that, you know, like that makes me pretty sad. But when he was, I, when he started going to school in Palmy, because we were doing a stint in Palmy then, I remember he came home and he just said, why do I have a black face? And I was like, who said that? You know, the way that, and he goes, no, I can just see it in the mirror, mum. And like, I just think just that the way he asked, it's just like the amount that's internalised. And then he got really upset too later um, at, at high school. My other boy's fair, but huge. Like he's got all the tongue and features in the body. And um, he was just like, why, why am, you know, again, why am I so dark? And then he named all, I said, who are you, why am I not like my friends? And then he named them all. And like, this is so bad, right? But I was just like, 
Yes, I hear you. I hear you that they are light. Are they better looking than you, Carlos? Are they? <laughs> are they? You tell me. And he was like, he was really embarrassed. And he's like, I said, what are they, you know, what, look at their features. Are they better looking than you? And he goes, no. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Like to be that mother. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> um, so having that experience in in Palmy, being the the darker family, mm. and the darker family within your own family, but also within your community, what was it then like to go to Tonga High mm. and have that experience? Was it the opposite, or yeah, it was one hundred percent? And even like more blatant, like you'd I just walk down the street and people would yell Balangi, Balangi, like like just totally call it out all the time. And I think because I lived there for months and months and months, like I realised at one point when I was the absolute darkest that I could possibly be without even opening my mouth, and someone would yell. Balangi, I was like, I, it does not, like, I am, this is, I actually am in this context. Mm. Um, and I, because you're surrounded by people that have really different facial features, I remember my truly Palangi cousin coming over and just staring at them because their noses were so sharp and their faces were so white and it was so weird looking after being in a completely Tongan environment. Just funny, eh? So I can I can sometimes, after being in a immersive Tongan environment, look in the mirror and get shocked by how white I am and how pointy my nose is and stuff and just go, holy, you know, it's so mm. visually relative. Yeah. Studying in Tonga, what, what was the reason mm. for you? To go to high school in Tonga. Oh, okay. So Hang on, were you a naughty girl? Because I know some no, people. No, <laughs> I was not. Like I was, sometimes it's you sent yeah, over there no, because I of wasn't that. Sent over. Um, my parents <laughs> split at intermediate, and I felt really big mummy for my dad because mm. I mean he was he was not a great husband by any means, but he totally like lo- like my mum was the love of his life. Mm. He just didn't. He just didn't have good skills, really, and um, and that's generous. But in my sister and I were the apple of his eye, so I guess I was kind of like on some level trying to rebalance. Like if I went to live with my dad in Tonga, that would kind of make it a bit better for him. And then I was at Palmas North Girls High School and um, I was in one of the top streams and it was really like, it was like hyper, hyper white. And I was being bullied a bit and I didn't really, I didn't like not going to school with boys mm. and I just <laughs> saw this as an option out. And so the official reason was that I was going to learn how to speak Tongan. Yeah. Everyone was like up for that. So I, I left and I went and it was really different from what I was expecting, yeah. Different in a good way? Yeah, like I, like I have huge love for Tonga, but I really didn't understand what I was getting myself in for. And so like the first, the even the school uniform, like I had to have regulation ribbons and yeah. we had to have our hair in plaits. I'd never plaited my hair before in my life. And I had this massive fringe that was like massively fuzzy because that was really cool at home. And I, you know, like, I remember wearing trousers on Mufti Day and being sent home. Like, it was just massive culture shock. 
Um, I went for runs and people would just look at me like I was mad, you know? Like it was, there was just so many like learning curves, I guess. And every morning we would be in these really like kind of puritanical uniforms and we would sing the Lord's Prayer and I got asked to clean the toilets on my first day at school because they don't have cleaners. You know, that was just so different. It's And it's hard work living in Tonga and I don't mean it's hard work like it's hard to be there. It's, it's physically hard work because yeah. when you live in Tonga, you... Washing your own clothes yeah, by you, hand. You and do everything yeah, that you need. You don't have the luxuries. So your toilet and shower, which is almost always never in the house and mm. all that stuff, yeah. Where did this love of poetry come from? Was it something that was fostered at a young age? Um, my mum was that. She's a kindergarten teacher, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, so she was that mother that, like, sang nursery rhymes and, um, like, I just remember that being a really big part of my childhood. And we went to the library all the time and and I remember I read the entire fairy tale section of the North Library. So I was always, like, quite into language and reading and I was always considered to be quite, like, brainy, mm. you know, and it was always a shock, you know, like <laughs> to my teachers and to other teachers. And yeah, they're like, oh my gosh, it's very well-spoken brown girl. And people would, like I would have parents or friends just be quite shocked. Like, oh, we've never met such a well-behaved Mari. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just wow. so intense. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It really was. So I got such a sense of it from such an early age. And plus, like, because I was from quite a large Pākehā whānau, they had friends who were intensely racist that were known to be, like, viscerally, revoltingly racist, but I was never really protected from them. That's weird. I look back and I think, why, why would that, you know, why didn't anyone protect me? I don't know. It makes me feel a bit sad now. Um, but, yeah, the very first time I was exposed to poetry, I remember I was in Standard 3. I was eight years old. We were asked to write a poem uh, on, like, a kidney bean-shaped st- seed. And I, like, I remember it goes, like, a seed needs an embryo, otherwise it will not grow. So you must think it's very clever, but it also depends on the weather. Like, that was my first poem. Wow. And I remember it. <laughs> like, that is, you know... That's a pretty amazing poem for your first <laughs> poem. <laughs> yeah, and then, like, I must... I think I won the intermediate poetry competition and, like... Yeah, I was the light ducks of my intermediate. I won everything. I was like a little freak, actually, now I look back. And because I've got kids that are a bit more normal, I'm like, my God, I was a freak. <laughs> a freak show. <laughs> I remember we even had like an intermediate Krypton factor and I remember winning it. And I think it's interesting. My, I remember my dad came to watch in his painting gear and I was real like proud. I like, did the puzzles faster in the rain. Because <laughs> it's totally public. Yeah. <laughs> and I think too, though, like all of that grounding made me really fearless and competitive with like elite, rich um, Pākehā people. Like mm. I've never, ever, ever had a sense that in any way 
they're superior. And it's really interesting because coming to live here, I've like got massively high-flying, like ridiculous Pacifica mates who still, when we were younger, felt intimidated because they grew up in like real brown as environments. Mm. But like, even though we were we weren't we were poor actually, and I think that's the thing because you're not just brown, but you also come from the wrong side of town. And I always mm. used to get people to drop me at the street so they didn't see a house, and you know, like because. It's different if you can protect yourself from that with money, but we couldn't either, and it was really frustrating to me. How has all of that, how has the the overt racism, the living in a small town, the, um, I don't want to say overachiever, the high achiever, yeah. <laughs> um, how has all of that influenced your poetry? Okay. I think there's like a missing element in who I am here and that is that at the age of 16 I had Papa Sean Ogden as my te reo teacher at high school and he gave me the biggest slap wake-up call around Aotearoa and the history of Aotearoa mm-hmm. and um, he essentially radicalised me and he was like, I don't, you, like the other teachers might think you're all that, but you're a potato. He called me like brown on the outside and white on the inside and he was like, you don't impress me. And yeah, it was like hard out. And so I got kind of conscientised and he, his parents were in Ngā Tamatoa and he was 24 and he was like angry and he didn't use the school textbooks. We got the earliest titiriti resources. Oh, yeah. And so I was reading about the Public Works Act and stuff and I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked because everything that I'd been taught, suddenly I realised that it wasn't really true and then I didn't know, you know, I'd been grown up on this fair New Zealand and everything like, and I, yeah, I became very angry myself mm. and um, actually quite depressed because... I realised that so much of what I've been taught was lies. Wow. So that really influenced me and I became a lot less interested in being um, like a top student. You know, I wasn't actually, you know, like I, I, like I still got A's and stuff, but it wasn't like I was, there's no way I was going to be ducks of that school. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like my whole, I, like, yeah. The motivation changed. It did, yeah. <clears throat> and so then I guess also something that I really realised is that te reo had language for things that English didn't mm. real early on and kind of in my, I don't know, I was like 17 and my very first boyfriend, who was like my true love, really, um, across my my first, we were in his bedroom and all the doors, all the windows were closed and, it, and he painted his room black because he was a melodramatic <laughs> kid. Um, and a, like an owl flew around the room and I was just like, <laughs> what is that? And he was like, oh, that's my kaitiaki checking you out. And so he, 
him and Papa Sean, because they were really bonded with each other, just like a whole nother universe mm. came into being. And then the Pākehā world just sort of shrank in its interest to me. And so once upon a time, maybe my call would have been to master it, like, you know, go and, I don't know, like do law and work for Price Waterhouse Cooper or something and like, you know, mm-hmm. but I was, I just really lost interest. And I wrote a lot of poetry to like that sort of, um, I guess maybe because it's a bit in between, like I wasn't really interested in I don't know, like usually I know this sounds weird, but I use fiction to write the truth. So, um, and I always have, like Mm. there's almost nothing that's made up about any of my poetry, but it's quite hard to... And then that's a weird thing too, like it's fundamentally racist that it's considered magical realism. And lots of Indigenous writers are in this perspective where people are like, oh, are they using magical realism? But you're not really... Like at mm. all, and I, one of the coolest conferences I ever went to was Indigenous Sci-Fi, and there were people from all. I was in Hawaii, people from all around the world, just writing from their own worldviews, but it was considered sci-fi. You've been a published poet for seventeen years. Oh my god! And I remember um, searching for. Pacific Māori female poetry, um, you know, through my high school years and through my university years. And it wasn't until much later in life that I actually found it because it was so hard to find. Yeah. And you are one of our greatest, um, you know, Indigenous female Pacifica poets that we have. And reading these words on these the um you know, on these pieces of paper are transformative for women reading from other women. And as you say, speaking the truth about all of these things that happen in our worlds and in our lived experiences and, and across our history. How, how, <laughs> like, what is my question here? How hard has it been to be in this space for this amount of time but how much have you been able to transform the space at the same time, if that makes sense? Mm. The first thing I want to say to you is that I know exactly how you feel or how you felt because I was searching for that myself and then I came across little Mapotiki stones in her mouth and I just got it out of the library over and over and over again. And even some of the men, like I remember reading... Into the World of Light, that anthology by Witi Ihimaira. And it was like the first time that I had ever read anything that resonated, mm. right? And um, it took me quite a long time to find the Pacific equivalents. Like I didn't find them until I was at university. And there were these tiny, slim volumes of poetry that Kunai Halutaman, Ruparaki Pataya, um, Momoi von Raiki. And it was so like, I don't know, it's like opening the pages of my heart and seeing something that I fully recognised and loved and you and Albert went too. Um, so I really understand that. Um, I find it harder to <laughs> be 
be there. <laughs> it's kind of weird to me, but um, the thing that I don't know, like dreamfish floating, just so feels like my twenties. You know, like I was just writing, and then funnily enough, the next one, a well-written body, is just my thirties, which is all about like finding yourself married, and I'm a little bit like disillusioned at that mm. time and then now this new collection is really my 40s so um, what has changed is just my research into Manamwana and that has really sort of shifted the dial around to the way that I write um, because that was a real search for Indigenous knowledge Indigenous language Indigenous mātauranga and it at its most simple, it is a collection of 70 of our most powerful words that are shared in all of our languages. So, because they come from source language like mana, tapu, um, whanua, whanua, whenua. It's whanua, whanua, whenua, inua is in 70 languages. Wow. Like, it's so, so I'm hitting on that um, end. Moana is in 35 languages and Arofa or Aroha is in 43 languages. And so going back to that source culture. And then I was looking at Samoan, Tongan, Nguyen, Māori, Cook Islands Māori, Hawaiian proverbs that circle around those power words. Um, so just lots of reading of whakatauki. And then I was also looking for common archetypes, so hina, sina, um, and tinilau, or who is also sinilau, and tingirau. And then so, and then reading as much, um, and I'm doing the inverted commas, mythology as possible to find the stories and the whakatauki that map to those concepts. So mm. I kind of built a canon um, and then my writing is forever changed because of it, because now I've got that missing canon in a way. Yeah. I want to, I have a copy of your latest book, mm. um, Goddess Muscle. Yeah. And I want to ask you at the end of this if you wouldn't mind reading. Of course. Um, totally. I'm out of it. Yeah. For us. But because we're talking about mana moana, I thought it might be a beautiful time to transition our corridor to actually talk about the mana moana leadership program that mm. you created yeah. and um, have been transforming lives through. Like I know a number of people who've gone through the mana moana program. I'm nervous. <laughs> we had a hard year last year with COVID. Yeah. No, but I know a number of people have gone mm. through that program, and um, it's a leadership program that is under the the whare of yep. Leadership New Zealand. Yep. Um, but it was created through your PhD and your postdoctorate research, which uh, I I didn't realise this. Like I knew that you facilitated the programme, but I didn't realise you actually created the programme yeah. that came from your PhD. And it has been an opportunity for a number of cohorts to go through this programme to really discover who they are as leaders and using, as you talk about, our mātauranga yeah. from right across the Pacific. Yeah, Can you tell me about the the program, sure. how it came about, yeah. um, but what, you know, why? Why did you oh, create yeah. this? Okay. 
The why is really simple in a way. Um, but first, I did my PhD trying to understand who I was and who my community was. Like, what did it mean to be Pacifica in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and what were we doing culturally and how were we identifying? Because I had, after rolling um, in a Pākehā world and quite, quite deep in Te Māori as well, I knew I wasn't either of those. And so I was just like, what are we? Like, what am I? And I hardly knew any others also. Mm. So I remember... Um, Anthro, like none of the uni courses could tell me, or they, they weren't about Pacific people at that point. So I remember, even in three hundred level, this nice anthropologist let me just create a bibliography of resources about Pacific people because it was so scant. Like, and um, so I was trying to understand who we were, and I went on to do my PhD looking at that in a mixed methods way, so number crunches plus um, qualitative interviews plus reading. And when I finished, I was like, okay, yeah, I get who we are. Mm. Sweet. Like I've kind of, yeah, okay, enough understanding for me. And I was really sick of PhDs and I didn't really want, you know, I was just like, why did I do that? Like what? Even now I find it really hard to recommend them. I'm like, oh, my God, so much time I just shoved my kids in front of a screen you know, sat there for years, like, on my butt. Just, really? <laughs> um, and now I've got a book. Woohoo! And, a, like, a PhD. So what? Um, and because, like, my dad is the smartest person I know and he can't read or write. And, man, there are a lot of PhDs out there with like, that are just total ding-dongs. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't, like, I don't know. It's a bit of a segue. But two things I found out when I was doing my PhD. One was that if you were proud, say, to be someone and someone values were still important to you, you were 50% less likely to have made a suicide attempt. And if you were Tongan and felt accepted by other Tongans and felt accepted by others generally, you were 70% less likely to make a suicide attempt. Wow. And so I knew that belonging, acceptance... um, the values and pride were associated with much better mental health outcomes. And so, and I knew I wanted, if I was going to study more, I wanted it to be something real in the world. Like there was no way I was just going to write something. I needed to create something. So I thought I'm going to create an intervention targeted at the Pacific population that are growing up here because I knew we had way worse mental health outcomes. But I had a secret agenda as well that was a bit less known and massively under the radar but was the true driver. And that is that I went back to Tonga in my early 20s and I got really, really sick over there. So I saw things and I heard things and I was just kind of like in another realm and I got sent back to a psychiatric ward and... um, diagnosed with like something in the schizo family Mm. and put on heaps of medication. And I like, I went from size 11 jeans to like a size 24 within like months. And I, yeah, I, I actually tried to kill myself. It was so bad. Like it was just such a shock 
to have that happen to me. And because the Western psychiatric system was so stink, like, it was just awful. And, like, the nurses, I still remember, like, they looked like they were about 22 with the Pakia girls with their nose pierced, you know, waiting to leave, and they'd Mm. go, the voices aren't real. And I'd just be like, you don't even know what you're talking about. Like, this is so terrifying and you don't, like, you're so dumb. You don't, under, you know, mm-hmm. like, because those voices had followed me from Tonga. And then um, I kind of, I survived it. Like, it didn't kill me. It nearly did. And then kind of, I don't know, like, a few years later, my dad would say something about something that happened in my Fano history. And I was there, like, <laughs> Queen Salody's husband, one of my, like, great, great, great aunts had a baby to him and I was there and so and when I was sick and other things like that and um, like I would have a name that was sung into my head that was what they used to call my grandmother I didn't know and the other thing is that in that in that experience so we live right next to Mala Ekula which is like Marae Kura Mm. yeah right across the road and I would be taken there every night and I would be hung or burned and I felt just, like, destroyed. And I were to, like, with this maddening crowd around me and I thought, oh, my... Like, it was, I was so, so terrified. And then much later, I saw this goddess statue and, um, and it's, like, so it, they were still had the nooses around their necks and I found out that... Tonga once revolved around a goddess and because the missionaries were so horrified by this, they partnered with the first king of Tonga to eradicate her and so they had hangings and burnings and he killed his priestess from behind, like knocked her on the head and they like, yeah. And so I got a bit of a shock and I knew then that what happened to me was not like, delusion like the 21 year olds were telling me and I was like and I already had a huge amount of reverence for our worldviews mm. you know and I was like I want to know if I got sick like that in Tonga if it had happened like 250 years ago how would they have understood what happened to me how would they have treated it named it known and just what would have been the logic for, because I was in a med school as well, the logic for etiology and treatment is what they call it, what would be considered symptoms, what would be considered, you know, the way to treat it. And so that was my secret agenda. I wanted to understand that. And that was how I had like a three-year research project to do it. And I interviewed traditional knowledge holders and people that have been sick and got well again and Pacific practitioners and almost came up with nada. <laughs> and I started getting really <laughs> freaked out. There were there were like a few people that were helpful, but I was just like, oh, I'm going to fail this. Mm. And then I thought about psychology and I was like, well, actually a friend of mine had a set of Jungian cards and I looked at them, like the hangman, blah, blah, and I was like, these are not ours. And psychology was based on initially, like, you know, Greek mythology and stuff. So I thought, I'm going to dive into that. I did for about a year. I just read everything. And 
it was so big, like it was all in the air. And then one day I was at my kids' swimming lessons and I downloaded something off the internet and it was Gregory Kahite was writing about how he had set up a school um, on Big Turtle Island drawing on like what was almost a dead language. Like there were only a handful of elders and he used this model by Frerere, I'm trying to learn how to say that properly, um, whereby you identify the power words and you create images for them to tap into an intergenerational transfer so Mm. the elders can go, oh, you know, mana, well, to me that blah, blah, blah. And um, then he said, find all the proverbs and all the stories and narratives around them and build your curriculum from that. And so that's what I did. And then I was like, because I'm Samoan and Tongan and I've been in those rooms where there are new and, and I was like, okay, I knew enough about the whakapapa of our languages to know that at some point they hit. And then I found Edward Trigger's comparative Māori dictionary that he wrote in the late 1800s. And then I found... Polyx online, which is this kind of linguistic database where you can type in any word and it will tell you how many languages it is. And they that formed the bones of Maramwana. I found like initially there were 90 words. And then I clicked, I read all the proverb books and if like say the word was waka, vaka, which is like 45 of our languages. And then I, you know, if I found it when I was reading the Hawaiian Proverbs book, I just copy it out and put it in, same mm. with someone and so on, until I built up this resource. So, and then I worked with Dr. Johnson Wadira and he created images. And then I, yeah, I took it to all of this, to a three-day wānanga, and it was kind of Tinker Taylor, Soldier Sailor-like, um, Hawaiian epistemologist, a Tongan psychiatrist, uh, there was um, Wiramuniania, Gansara um, Atuhunga, and Cook Islands psychologists and stuff. And we sat there for three days and went through like what was good about it, what was wrong about it, what was missing. And Manulani Mea, who was there, said to me, Carlo, great metaphors that you've collected, but unless you go in knowing exactly what you're doing with an intervention logic that aligns with the way in which we've healed people for centuries, you're going to miss the boat. So that was like a whole other year of um, research. And then there was a whole year of research just going around showing it to people and crying sometimes in front of people that I was really scared of. (laughs) It's like real Pacific methodology. And then the last of, like, I had to extend it part-time, five years. Then we had to, I worked with a clin psych, um, Dr. Evangeline Daniela, she's um, from Moke, and we then had to train it, like, do prove that it was teachable and then three of the people that went through the training then delivered it to the Wesley College Prefix as a program and testing it for feasibility and acceptability. I would never recommend anybody ever do that. (laughs) This is not the way that I would say you should go about it. (laughs) (laughs) No. But but then I came out and 
I was exhausted, but we had like a full program. And at some point um, during very late in the piece, it's so embarrassing how late, I realised that all those words were largely the words of our shared ancestral landscape. So like maunga, the shore, uta, the um, mm. deep moana, you know, the reef, um, the the there were all of our words for cultivating and then for the deep, dark forest and the whale and whare, the village. And so we then imagined this ancestral island that we called Motutapu, that was the source island. And then the program was an exploration of that. So you moved around and there were different sessions that were set in each part. But at the same time, it all had to be informed by a really clear healing logic, which it was. But it was kind of appropriate because often we are really metaphorical and mm. indirect. So it was quite a metaphorical and indirect way of going around. Plus, it's what I figure. Oh, I know, I don't forget that our ancestors deeply theorised every inch of our shared landscape, paid deep attention, understood how it all cohered together. And so it was like Oceania's library and the library of the land. And so even now um, it got adapted for adults because um, a woman that I knew who actually worked at Leadership New Zealand, she was just like, this is sacred material, it needs to get funded. And she was quite tapped into Foundation North and she just went in and advocated and advocated and then they wanted to hear. So um, I presented it and then they were like, actually, we do want to fund that, but I wasn't like my own charity. So mm-hmm. they were like, what about through Leadership New Zealand? And Sina was the, went as the CE. So it's just kind of all meant to be. Yeah. And it's... I mean, there are many ways that this program could have gone and there are many people that it could have ended up with and it's ended up through Leadership New Zealand um, being taught to and with um, and contributing into the lives of some of our greatest leaders when we think about who has gone through these programs from varying backgrounds. There's people that I've seen who are creatives and artists and there are some who work in racial equity and there are some who, you know, like just across the landscape of Pacifica as well. Yeah, Um, absolutely. How do you feel Because it's a huge accomplishment. I mean, (laughs) you've accomplished so many things in your life. And I know you're sitting here like, no. (laughs) But you've accomplished many things in your life and you've impacted so many lives. How how do you feel? I think, like, I created that to save myself because I found the Palangi environment so the opposite of enlivening, Mm -hmm. you know, and... I believed our ancestors were geniuses. So in many ways, I tried to be a not wobbly vessel so that their genius could arrive at my generation because I felt like it had been really blocked and disrupted. And sometimes I was a really wobbly, wobbly vessel. Like Mm. I had a breakdown partway through it. And I started off at University of Otago and my supervisor who was also the head of department, who was also the dean, um, did something that was like so off. 
that I went to my funder and they're like, any university, um, you can go to anyone. Like, that's a culturally unsafe environment. And I was like, cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really upset as well because we'd bought a house across the road. Anyway, this really wise Pākehā guy said to me, Carlo, you're the kaitiaki of Manawana and it has its own modi and its own knowing. And so if you can just step back and stop like kind of making it all about you, it it doesn't want to be here. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Like it was such a good reframe. <laughs> and then um, what happened, which is so weird, is that a woman that I knew who I adore, Irene from University of Auckland goes, come here and because, like, we don't have to pay anything to have you but we get all the benefits, we'll pay for you to do Leadership New Zealand. And so I was like, oh, okay, all right, let's do that. And then I did Leadership New Zealand and I was like, oh, this is a psychological intervention and I'm creating one except for it's like, you're amazing. You just need to, like, maybe, like, work on your shadows and Mm -hmm. have a clearer sense of your purpose and stuff. And as I was going through, I was, like, thinking... This is what everyone needs. Like, this is what our young people deserve, not like you're munted and you're going to cost the government a lot of money unless you fix yourself up and you're biologically Mm. never going to be where everyone else is. Because I had sort of had that and I could see how average a lot of those um, Palangi leaders in really high-paying influential jobs were. And I was like, oh, nah. (laughs) Because they don't have the magic that we have. And I talk about we as in Māori Pacifica, people of Oceania, who have an added magic about us. <laughs> yeah, I just have to say that this is true. Like, and some of them who are really connected into who they are, they, you know, like they're... Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, my kid, I just try not to be racist. I try really hard. Um, they, yeah... I just thought, wow, this is really cool when I was developing Manamana and it flipped it for me. I was like, there's no way I'm going to go these people at Munted. I'm going to be like, ancestral legacy, like, you know, like live legacy, yeah. And so that's, it flipped it. And a mixture of decolonising and indigenising and resurging and, and interweaving. What I love is when I hear you speak and even when I hear you talk about um, the research, because, you know, a lot of us who are creatives are not... Uh, great at mathematics or statistics and sciences and all of those sorts of things. But in hearing you speak, you've been able to kind of weave the creative side of you and the, um, I don't even know what the word is for the STEM side, but (laughs) the other side and and, um, blend them together quite nicely, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, on one level, because I used to work as the manager of Pacific Health Research, evidence-based can be a really powerful tool to get us the resources. Mm. The only thing is, is that you end up proving like, oh, we're so poor, we're so fat, we're so mentally unwell, like give us money. And that is just like, Mm. you can only do that a few times and then you just feel really dirty. I have a poem about that, like we are not statistics. We find ourselves statistics because that's just a real massive deficit trap. And I'm like, nah. When you write your poetry, what are you hoping when someone reads it? Because are you hoping to have uh, influenced someone to think a certain way? Or is your poetry quite personal in that it's you getting it out of you, not necessarily you writing it for someone else 
to read. Do you know I, what I mean? Yeah, I have both. Like, so some poetry, I am processing something that is so heavy and hard for me. And it's like once I find, and I can work on those for months, and then it releases me mm. and it releases that. And I'm like, yes, that is exactly it. And it is captured now. I've nailed it. Almost like a mastery of like something massively complicated. Um, and then, and deeply personal. And then I have ones that I am specifically trying to write so that other people understand, like the poem for Ihimato. Like I was A, trying to get my head around it, but B, I felt like there was so much misrepresentation and kaka in the news about it mm. that I was like, I want you to feel the full force of this punch. Um, and I have quite a lot, like Tamir Rice dying, um, different things like that. I... I'm, I'm kind of so angry and I want, I mean, there's a poem in there called For My Sisters that is about one of my beloveds experiencing incest and taking her father to court. And it's so like, even now as I say that, like I feel like, you know, an accordion, like all stuck together in my chest. Mm. But when I, that's took me like, you know, weeks to write, but I could feel it like the accordion and then the words finding their way, bringing dignity to stuff is really important. Clarity. In fact, one of the poems, um, I was sent to Jamaica to read a climate change poem and I was really struggling because I just didn't have time to write it before and I was trying to write it on the plane and I was reading all the climate change let's shit getting a bit shocked because I didn't really know, not fully. Mm. And I kept sending different versions to Manu Lani Mia because it had Kapihi's prophecy in it. And like, I'm like, oh, this, this is like risky as because, you know, I'm not Hawaiian, but this prophecy speaks to climate change. And we were just toing and froing and I kept sending it to her. And she said, you are emerging with greater and greater clarity and then I thought, oh, maybe that's like my definition of poetry is clarity. Mm. I am a writer. Uh, I'm not a poet. <laughs> so I write features and profiles and interviews. And every now and again, I will write my version of poetry. And when I say my version of poetry, it's because I feel so... Um, What's the word? Like I didn't get taught to write poetry yeah. and I know that there are certain types of poems that have to have a certain number of beats in them to yeah, make it that yeah, poem yeah. or they have to be have this many syllables or they have, like whatever it is. There's, there are rules yeah. around poetry and great poetry and that's why I'm always like, I'm not a poet. I will write things that I, that I say as a poem yeah. but doesn't uh, align to any rules. If there are people out there like me, <laughs> um, I mean, what advice do you have for people who find writing as a as a way to find clarity for themselves, yeah. as a way of healing for themselves, as a way of exploring ideas differently, stretching their own mind, pushing themselves creatively, but have never actually learnt the 
the, the, the proper side yeah. of poetry, okay. I should say. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I have very little interest in the proper side of poetry. Mm-hmm. Like I know what you're saying about rules, but what drew me in was that there were no rules. So you don't need to have full stops or like understand where whether it's a semicolon or a, you know, like there are literally no rules mm-hmm. at the same time. And yes, you could do like a sustainer once I did one as an exercise in a class. And um, But also there are no rules. You don't have to rhyme, you don't have to anything. It could be like five words and it's still a poem, um, which is really freeing because prose has got so much infrastructure to it Um, and I tried to write a novel and I didn't have the discipline or interest in writing the shape of it like I just kept going for moments of Mm. interactions right and then the the in-between was boring to me (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I guess I feel like I was really lucky because it was Alice Walker I read her book Her Blue Body Everything We Know and I like got it out of the library, out of the library, out of the library, because I wasn't from a... I just couldn't afford books, you know. And then when I finally could, I bought it, and it was like a Bible to me. And she just says it straight. Mm -hmm. And she says, write what you see as clearly as you can. And she was writing about racism, and she was writing about her lovers, and she was so free and honest about what she wrote about. At the opening of her book, she said that she thought she would be a suicide by 30, which for me was really freeing as well. And then she was like, but then out of me rose poetry again and again. And um, I think because I'd never had a woman that dared to be herself so much and that was a woman of colour that wrote about racism because really in many ways my mum was white and so she could offer me many wonderful things but not that understanding Mm. and that is a little bit lonely, right? Like, um, so I got permission to write how I wanted by seeing what I loved Mm. and I would say that I still have very little interest in poetry that is just trying to be clever or like it's kind of egoic to me. And I have like judged the New Zealand Book Awards, um, the poetry section, and I still don't know what some of those things are that like, you know, I hear a word and I'm like, oh, Jesus, what is that? But I just don't really care. And I used to hate New Zealand poetry because I just found it so boring. I was just like care about the bloody moorporks on the fences mm. and what they're saying, you know, the man alone on the farm, like, get away from me. <laughs> no. My nan used to love Sam Hunt because she's like, he's oh. crazy. He's so crazy. Yeah. Who even knows what he's talking about? He starts talking about this thing. He's like, and then the moon and the stars and the blue cup in the corner. And my, my nan's like, I love it. It's yeah. so random. So many people <laughs> do. Um, I was just with Tommy Eti like two nights ago and he was talking about Sam Hunt. It's like, he's, but, I, but again, like he's the master of freedom, right? Yeah. And that is in rhyme and the way things sound. I would really encourage all of those people to write. Yeah. Just we need to, we are, and we need to read those stories. Like your clarity will save someone's life, you know, mm-hmm. I feel. 
We've talked about a number of different women over mm. this um, corridor. Some of them I know, some of them I don't know, and some of them I'm going to go back and write their names down <laughs> and go and find out more about them. Who is an Indigenous woman that has inspired you on your journey? Mm. Well, you immediately take me to Kornai Halu Thurman, who I've mentioned, and she is a Tongan poet and she's got a really famous poem called You, the Choice of My Parents. And to have her words illuminate lovingly mm. issues of Tongan women was so important to me and precious. And I know her now, so cool. But she also is an academic and wrote the first Tongan model of like research making, the Kakala model. So, and she wrote about the VA, which is central. So, I mean, she's so important to me. But so, like, I can't help but go to the writers, like Roma Potiki. And um, I just love to read a collection of her work now. Um, and uh, yeah, Momoi von Raki really speaks to me as well because she was so early on. And um, Sia Fagal, obviously. Mm. Like, those are the voices. Grace, Molisa. And every time, I don't know, it's like you could breathe easier in the world because they were writing. And they lived such multi-lives. Like, Grace um, from Vanuatu was also a politician. Like, those mm. ones are just freaking doing everything. <laughs> As we've as we've discovered across this series, that Indigenous women just do everything and carry so many roles. What is it to be an Indigenous woman today, and specifically your lived experience mm. being a Tongan Samoan Balangi woman, mm. uh, a mother of boys, mm. um, a creative, a writer, a, mm. a person who also runs a leadership program? Mm. What is it to be an Indigenous woman today? What does that look like for you? For me, Marshall Salins talks about cultural continuity and he says that cultural continuity is not necessarily about coming to a standstill. Sometimes cultural continuity can be found in the logic of change. So sometimes how we change in order to be more like ourselves. Mm. And I always think of the Tongan funeral T-shirts whereby we, you know, yes. and how, like, they you pimp out the car with the rest in peace. Like, we are changing to be more like ourselves. And so I'm not so... I'm, like, cool with how people are changing, but I want it to be on our own terms, mm. like collectively self-determined. And because we've been, we've had such limited financial resources, I want to see us pumped with abundance and making those choices. Mm. You know, and it's beautiful. It's like the color I was wearing, you know? Oh my gosh, like... That is luxe and it's so dumb and not Tongan to be buying your own kolor because it's supposed to come through your whanau, right? But because I come through, it comes through your mum's line and I've got a balangi. So here I am like spending like quite a lot of money <laughs> in a really bougie way, right? <laughs> like so bougie, but on kolor, which then 
creates a woman who, you know, it adds economic value to a woman who is making kolor out of power shells and all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, and so we are changing, but to be more like ourselves. And so I just want us to be totally self-determining about our logic of change. And then the other thing is just lack of access to resources. So like we've got, so, and by this I mean cultural, cultural resources, like there's palangi everything everywhere in every shop, in every history book. Mm. And that's why Manamwana, because I wanted resources to story a way better story of myself to inform how I interpret things and stuff like that. So there's a lot of, for heaps of us, our generation, there's like kind of, I feel really responsible to kind of do these archaeological digs in libraries and, you know, and so on. To So there's easier access to resources and then you can choose to leave it but as long as you get to choose. Mm. What is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? Well, that we're in charge of everything. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Like, I see that as vital to that changed balance of power. And utu, like, really, like, I, I would sum up in one word that I feel like that's my calling. And by that, I don't mean being vengeful, but rebalancing, <laughs> kind of vengeful, but rebalancing... I feel like we've all got, you know, there's so much that needs to be rebalanced mm. for, you know, for the whenua as well. You know, so much needs to be rebalanced. I would love for you to read us yeah. one of your poems. Of course. Um, Which one? Let's choose. <laughs> so this poem is called Mātou Manamwana. It's a kind of a hook um, we use the mato all the time around intentionality and when you're going on an ambitious journey, all of our matauranga says to bait the hook and prepare the hook on the shore before you get to the deep ocean. So this is the intentionality of it. I was asked to be a guest speaker years ago at a Pacific mentoring event mm. and I started writing the bones of it for that around low expectations and stuff. But the rest of it has come from things I've learned through researching Manamwana and I always read it at the beginning of every yeah. Here we go. Mato Manamwana. We have all travelled through the bodies of so many relatives to arrive here. All of us wearing those who have passed fresh on our faces. We are the next waves of a tide that has been coming for a long time. Let us follow the ocean roads that lead us via stars to the expansion of each other. And if we make mistakes on the shore, let us rectify this in the deep ocean. 
Let us steer through the storms, for our leaders have always been determined on the high seas. In times of darkness, let us dare to shine and have no fear about burning too brightly. Resist the dimming and dumbing down of low expectations. It does not serve your families. It does not serve our communities. Let each of us find that place where we have most to give, where we will be of most service. Resist those things that we fear and those people who fear us when we are at our most powerful. When the journey is too hard, let us tie our outriggers to each other and share breath. Let us heed the words of our ancestors for the mato, the hooks in your hands, which you use to cast your dreams, are hewed from the jawbones of your ancestors. What do they want you to catch in this lifetime? What do you want your mokopuna to catch in theirs? You are the thread between what has been before and what will come as long as you have breath. We have so much to remember. We have so much to learn. We have so much to teach. Let us serve. Wow. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us. I really want to cry after that. <laughs> it's, your words are powerful and they connect me back to me and remind me of the power that is in our whakapapa. And I want to thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your story with us today, uh, for the contribution that you make to our spaces. And uh, thank you so much for the beautiful words that you continue to write that will have impact on us and our tamariki. Tēnā koe. Oh, thank you so much. I feel really honoured. Thank you.